All right, Genesis chapter 16, again, in its entirety. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children. And when she had a handmaid, and she had a handmaid, an Egyptian whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarai said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between me and thee. But Abram said unto Sarai, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleases thee. And when Sarai dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, whence comest thou, and whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress, and submit thyself under her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shall bear a son, and shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. And he will be a wild man, his hand will he be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Wherefore the well was called Birleorii. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bare Abram a son, and Abram called his son's name, which Hagar bare, Ishmael. And Abram was fourscore and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. This is the reading of his word. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word unto us, that we might preach, that we might appreciate the gospel that is therein and all the things that thou hast placed in thy word for our benefit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, this morning, as I'd mentioned, I want to um, speak on a couple of, well, one major big picture lesson that's set forth in this portion of Scripture as it touches the lives of the people that he had placed in here, and that is the sovereignty of God and the doctrine of election. Um, as a disclaimer, like I like to do, I want to remind us that nothing I say with respect to the sovereignty of God absolves man of his responsibility to heed the word of God and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation, as God calls them to do. God never tempts a man to sin, and God righteously holds men accountable for their sins and for the rejection of him and his word. So again, we always find this tension in Scripture, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Today I'm speaking primarily on the responsibility of God, uh, on the sovereignty of God, but the responsibility of man is there as well. 
In verses 7 through 14 of chapter 16 here, we see that Hagar has fled from the face of her mistress, which is a nice word for master. She's fled from her master, Sarai, who has been dealing hardly with her, making life very difficult for her. We see that the angel of the Lord comes to her, which I'm going to share with you is a Christophany. It's obviously God himself is coming to her. He knows the heaviness of her heart. He asks a question, as God often does, not because he doesn't know the answer, but because you don't know the answer, and he's provoking you to some thought here. In verse 10, he clearly says, I will multiply thy seed. That's not an angel of any kind. It's the angel of the Lord. It's Christ himself that has come to her. He's the power to multiply, the power to open up a woman's womb, rests in Christ, not in uh, another kind of angel, an angel versus the angel. So here I want us to appreciate first that God looks over all the affairs of all people. He is sovereign over all things and all people. He is sovereign over the elect and he is sovereign over the non-elect. In Matthew 5, 43, the Lord says, Christ speaking, he says, he maketh his son to shine on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust, the elect, the non-elect, the just, the non-just, the righteous and the wicked. God is sovereign over all peoples. Now, we often speak about how the Lord is intimately involved in the affairs of our lives, the elect, which of course is true, but I also want us to appreciate that he's involved in the lives of the non-elect. He knows what fears we suffer from, and he knows what trials we face. But of a truth, he certainly knows the trials of all people. The very hairs of our head are numbered just as the very hairs of their head are numbered. God knows it all, and he is sovereign over all, and he looks into all things. In Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3, Proverbs 15, 3, the Lord says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And in Proverbs 5, 21, it says, For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, He pondereth all his goings. God is everywhere in terms of knowing what everybody is doing. He knows what's on everybody's heart. In verse 8 here, we see that he comes to Hagar. He calls her by name and makes note of her relationship to Sarai. He says um, that she's, you know, Sarai is is her mistress. Um, He... um, And so he comes to her with the idea that she would ponder her goings because he asks her, uh, Whence cometh thou, and whither wilt thou go? Uh, Now that's a big question which applies to all people. I remember having a conversation with my son years ago as he would be walking through the town he was living in and there was lots of beggars, lots of people sitting around all day long doing absolutely nothing. And he would think to himself, Where are you people going? What are you doing with your lives? Where did you come from? Um, well, we have an idea, being Christians and being schooled in the scriptures about where they have come from and where they are going, but that's a good question that is asked amongst, that should be asked amongst all people. Years ago, people did understand that they were made by God, that they are descendants of Adam and Eve, and that one day they will give an account to God. People used to be taught where they came from and where they're going. They came from Adam and Eve, made by God, and they're going to go before the throne of judgment. But people don't understand that anymore. Given what harm has been caused by the theory of evolution, people can't answer that question anymore. So they engage in activities as though there are no consequence for it. And so we see great evils uh, in this country, people shooting up 
other people, uh, thinking that they are come from a primordial soup and they will never be held accountable for what things they have done. There are consequences for this foolish teaching and this ignorance that uh, people have in their, in their hearts. They don't know where they've come from, and they have but a subconscious foreboding as to where they are going to go, because we know that Scripture says that all men are in bondage to fear of death. So they have some kind of a, a subconscious foreboding, but they certainly don't conduct and behave themselves that that truth is pressed upon their hearts in a meaningful and real way. They suppress what knowledge they have of God and change the truth of God into a lie and worship and serve the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. They fail to appreciate how intimately God is involved in the lives of every person on this planet. They fail to appreciate that God is the potter and we are the clay. In Romans 9.21 it says, the question is asked, Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? That's a good question, and it's a rhetorical question because the answer, obviously, is yes. The potter can do that very thing. He can take up the same lump of clay, make one vessel to honor, and one vessel unto dishonor. In Genesis, we shall see that from Abram and Hagar shall come the vessel Ishmael, fitted for dishonor. And from Abraham and Sarah shall come the vessel Isaac, fitted for honor. Both from the same man, one for honor, one for dishonor. In the course of Genesis, we will see God separating these two peoples. We will see the doctrine of election manifest itself in the lives of these people that God has set before us. Here we see the Lord coming to Hagar and can appreciate the difficulties of her situation. She's been poorly treated by Sarai, who gave her to Abram to be a surrogate mother and then abused her because the Lord opened her womb and then pride set in. As a slave, Hagar is at the very bottom of the social pyramid. I can think of no more demeaning thing to do to a person than to be forced to bear the child of another. Clearly, she has been humbled as much as a person could be humbled. However, we see that she is nevertheless blessed by God who comes to her and assures her that he will multiply her seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. The multiplication of her seed is a multiplication of Abram's seed, though it's not counted for the promise or covenant. Allegorically, they are but vessels of dishonor, Hagar and Ishmael. They represent the non-elect of God. In Genesis chapter 17, verses 18 and 21, Abraham makes an appeal to God, the potter, for his son Ishmael. He wants his son Ishmael to be the promised son, but God says no. In verse 18 of Genesis 17, we read, And Abraham said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. Allegorically, this seed represents the elect of God, vessels of honor. Verse 20, as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac 
which Sarai shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. Now, as you're reading these blessings in verse 20 and 21 about Ishmael, keep in mind that God has said that he shall be a wild man and every man's hand shall be against him and he shall dwell in the presence of his enemies. His hand shall be against every man. So it's not good fruit that's going to come forth, but nevertheless, God's going to bless them in terms of uh, population growth. Now, there's a parallel here in verse 20 with respect to the 12 princes. Note that God here sets up two lines of people with this interesting parallel. 12 princes are going to come from Ishmael, and we know that from Jacob shall come the 12 tribes of Israel. So God's setting up these interesting parallels distinct one from another. He's setting uh, up, allegorically speaking, elect from non-elect. Hagar, we see here, is blessed for Abram's sake because she bare Abram's son Ishmael, just as our sovereign God ordained that she would do. And so throughout history, we see that those who represent the non-elect of God receive certain temporal blessings for the benefit of God's elect. Hagar is blessed because she carries Abram's seed. Now, recall as we get further down, I know you've read ahead and certainly know what happens in the... In the um, in the history, uh, as we go through Genesis, recall that Laban knew that he was blessed for Jacob's sake. The blessings God conferred upon his elect, Jacob, spilled over to include those within the scope of his influence. The same is true for you and me. Blessings God confers upon the elect are enjoyed by those that live with us, though they are not the elect of God. God speaks about this in 1 Corinthians, about the house being sanctified by the believing wife, though the husband be a non-believer, and vice versa. The, not, the believing husband would sanctify the believing wife, lest your children should be unholy, as it says. So there's a sanctifying uh, separation process that takes place by virtue of the elect and their presence and proximity to the non-elect. Genesis 30, 27 speaks about this with respect to Laban. In Genesis chapter 30, Verse 27, we read, And Laban said unto him, he's speaking to Jacob, who's leaving him, he says, I pray thee, if I have found favor in thine eyes, tarry, for I have learned by experience that the Lord hath blessed me for thy sake. So Laban's got it figured out that his flocks have prospered by virtue of the fact that Jacob has the oversight of them. So it's for Jacob's sake that he has been blessed. And the same thing is true, again, in big picture here with the way God deals with this, uh, the people of this earth. God keeps this earth in orbit, stable on its axis, and will do so until the last of the elect are brought into the ark of Christ. Seed time and harvest shall not cease while the earth remaineth. That's for everybody's benefit, but he particularly does it for the elect's sake until they have all come into the ark of Christ. Now, last week... We saw how Sarah and Hagar represented the two covenants. This we learned because it says it quite plainly in Galatians chapter 4, verses 22 through 26. So we learned some lessons about the law there when we were looking at Sarah and Hagar, how they were, what the dynamics were, and how that represents law versus great, the two covenants. Today I want to look at Sarah and Hagar with respect to the doctrine of election. Now, when we think of the doctrine of election and how people usually teach about it, um, they usually go to Romans chapter 6, uh, excuse me, Romans chapter 9, and look at verses, um, I want to pick it up in uh, verse 28, and we read here, um, for we know, actually that's not where I want to start, I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 6, I got my bookmarks out of order, chapter 9, verse 6. 
not as though the word of God hath taken effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. He's making the case here in the argument that just because you are, are physically related to Israel, that's not the Israel that God has in view, but rather spiritual Israel. So not all Israel is of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall they seed be called. So he's already setting apart Isaac and Ishmael. Abraham actually had lots of children. He had them through three different women, through Hagar first, then Sarah, and then after Sarah passed away through Keturah. So he, there were other women that were involved here, that, who he had other children, and they were all sent away except for uh, Isaac. So he's saying here, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they the children, but in Isaac shall they seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. This we just read in Genesis 17. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger." As it is written, and this comes from Malachi chapter 1, the first three verses, As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So, then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. So the Lord is setting before us here very clear statements that Jacob I've loved, Esau I hated, and this happened before either one was born, that the doctrine of election would stand. It's not incumbent upon you or me to chase after God, because I will show you verses that no man does that, but rather of God that shows um, mercy. So I want us to appreciate here from our text is that the blessing of eternal salvation and fellowship with God um, that God has conferred that upon us. He's conferred it upon his elect, and it has nothing to do with us in terms of what we might merit from God because we merit nothing but judgment, but rather it relies exclusively on his grace and his mercy. Verse 16, So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Now in Titus 3.5, the Lord sets it very clearly before us. He says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, because we have no works of righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We are all as in unclean things, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. We have no righteousness. God didn't save us by virtue of our righteousnesses, but rather from his grace and his mercy rooted in the righteousness of Christ ourselves. So we can see that there is nothing within ourselves that might warrant the mercy of God. It is exclusively by his grace that a person is saved from the consequences both of their sin and the sin of Adam because we were in the loins of Adam when he sinned, and so we are guilty on that account as well. Now, what makes this relevant to our text this morning is that what we have in terms of what Abraham and Sarah did is a recapitulation of the fall of man, whereby at the instigation of the woman, 
the wife of the man, sin is introduced into the mix and grave consequences follow. Pride, the first of these evil fruits, manifests itself in Hagar, and she begins to look down upon Sarai. Sarai, hoping that she would be built up by Hagar, in the Hebrew it says built up, and it was translated obtained children, but Sarah, hoping that she would be built up by Hagar, is rather torn down, which of course is the only fruit that sin bears. Sin destroys everything. It only destroys, it only brings people down. Seeing this, that this has happened, Sarah admits her fault to her husband, Abram, by saying, my wrong be upon thee, even indeed as Eve's wrong became Adam's. Adam took that upon himself when she gave him the fruit. We see a a parallel here. Now, what makes this particularly interesting is that Sarai knew better. She knew better. I, I don't say she should have known better, like maybe if she'd thought about something, but she knew better. In verse 2, it comes right out of her mouth. Sarah says to Abraham in verse 2 of Genesis 16, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid, that it may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abraham hearkened unto the voice of Sarai. So, out of her own mouth, she acknowledges that God's hand is in her barren womb, and yet she thinks he would give her, them children, through an adulterous relationship between Abram and Hagar. You can tell her thinking is really mixed up in her heart, what's going on here. God has withheld me from bearing, and so (laughs) you'd go do it. Um, When you put Abram, Sarai, and Hagar side by side, I find Hagar the most sympathetic of the three people. She was, no doubt, a slave in Egypt. We see that she's introduced to us in Genesis 12, 16, where she is given to Abram by Pharaoh, uh, and he got himself into Egypt by virtue of his sin, but Pharaoh gives him a a handmaid, and he, no doubt, gives then Hagar to his wife, Sarai. So here she is now given to lie with Abram as a surrogate mother to Sarai. Then Sarai, regretting the arrangement, not out of some sense of righteousness for God's sake, but due her wounded pride, treats her so poorly that she flees her presence while pregnant with no place to go. Who would take in a pregnant slave? Where is she going to go? God asked her that question in verse 8. She's got no answer where she's going. She says only, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarai. Now, she's been with Sarah for 10 years, but now she's treated so poorly that she picks up and she flees with nowhere to go. Eventually, she's going to be cast out altogether by Sarah. Now, as for Abram, the man of faith, our man of faith who set up as the icon before us, he walked right through the promised land and landed in Egypt, where he denied his wife, setting her up to be taken into Pharaoh's house and made one of his wife. Later, he's rebuked by Pharaoh, and he's sent back out. So we have an example here of the unregenerate rebuking the the regenerate, the non-Christian rebuking the Christian for their behavior. Then, speaking of Abram, having known God's grace and strength in his victory over the Chaldeans in chapter 14, and he's then blessed by Melchizedek, And then he's told by God he would have a child out of his own bowels. He yet lies with Hagar, believing his wife, as though through sin he would fulfill the promise of God. Abraham and Sarai seem like very poor candidates for glory 
if it was rooted in meritocracy, particularly when you compare it with Sarah's handmaid, Hagar, who's a slave. And I think that this is one of the points in all this that we should appreciate, and we see this in the Gospel. We read in 1 Timothy 1.15 that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And in Matthew 9.13, Jesus says, I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And I hope we can see that in the lives of the three people here that are set before us. So here we have an example in that it's Abraham and Sarai that are the recipients of God's mercy and not the more sympathetic and I would say more appealing character of Hagar. So when we consider the doctrine of election, we should appreciate that if God didn't elect or predestinate people to glory, none would be saved because no man can save himself. And quite frankly, no man has an interest in having a relationship with God because it offends his pride. Scripture tells us in Romans 3.20 that by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. And in Galatians 3.11, no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. So though we are by nature unrighteous, there's nothing we can do to amend that. There's nothing that we can do to merit God's favor. We cannot keep the law. By the law is the knowledge of sin. And we talked about that last Sunday. Now, given what we've seen in Abraham and Sarah's life so far, they have sinned, I'm quote, they have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. Absent God's grace and his mercy, there is but one place for them to go, and that would be the lake of fire. And yet we know that's not where they will go because Jesus says that God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. He is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And so we know that Abraham yet lives today, and he does so because of God's grace and mercy. He is one of God's elect, which we will see from some of the subtleties in the language here we have set before us in Genesis. However, before we look at that, I want to look at some very clear scriptures that clearly state the doctrine of election, so we have a basic understanding of it as clearly stated in scripture. And I want to start with Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30. In Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, we read, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren." Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, people like to take the word foreknow and put a different meaning on it than would be understood from the context here. Foreknow can mean two things in Scripture. One means that God knew ahead of time, And the other means he had a relationship preceding this particular statement here. To know a woman is to have an intimate relationship with her. It's to be understood in the manner where God had a relationship there. He loved these people from before the world began. So it means to have a relationship with them. When we look at the scripture, we can appreciate that men will not look to God. In Psalm chapter 14, verses 1 through 3... Psalm 14, 1 through 3, we read, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt 
They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. This is God describing man. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They're all gone aside. They're all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. God looking down from heaven, seeing if anybody's going to seek him, and the answer is unequivocally no. Psalm 53, verses 1 through 3. Almost identical. Psalm 53, 1 through 3. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Corrupt are they and have done abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. Every one of them is gone back. They are all together become filthy. There is none good, no, not one. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, same thing. The, uh, the Lord quoting from the Old Testament in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Nobody seeks God. It is God who seeks them. So I want us to appreciate that foolish interpretation of Romans chapter 8 when they says that God uh, foreknew that uh, he looked down the quarters of time and knew who would accept him of a truth. If you want to interpret it that way, you would have to say God foreknew that no one would accept him because there are none that understandeth, there are none that seeketh after God. God tells us that nobody will listen to him. So not only does nobody look to God, nobody listens to him. In Romans 8, 7, it says, For the carnal mind is at enmity with God. It is not subject to the law, neither indeed can be. Men will not listen to God. They will not heed his word. In John chapter 3, we have those um, famous uh, words of the Lord where he's speaking, and he says that unless a man is born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God And then he says he can't even see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So surely a man cannot enter in nor see something if he's neither seeking it and and he's blind and he cannot see it. Then he teaches us in John, these are more um, verses that help us to appreciate where a man is. He can't get to God but through Christ. Man cannot get to God unless he goes through Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Okay, so if I'm going to get to the Father, I've got to go through the Son. And then he teaches us over in John 6, 44, that no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. So I can't get to God unless I go through Christ, and I can't get to Christ unless the Father draws me. So we have set before here that the, the truth is men won't look to God, they won't listen to God, they can't see God in Christ, and they can't get to God but through Christ, and they can't get to Christ but by God. So in Romans 8, 28, when it talks about the elect of God, foreknown of God, predestined of God, it means, obviously, the foreknown means that God had a relationship with them and, and knew them from eternity past, which the Lord speaks about in John chapter 17. He's, as he's speaking with his disciples, he wants them to appreciate that they are loved the same way the Father loves the Son. And the Father has loved the Son from before time was, before, um, from eternity um, past. In verse 23 of John 17, he's speaking about the unity we have. I, Christ, in them, and thou, the Father, in me, 
that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast, this is the important verse, hast loved them, hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Same love. And then down in the second half of verse 24, he says, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. God loved us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. That's what foreknow means, and that's the way we should understand it and appreciate it. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, he says, God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, wherein he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he has from the beginning chosen us to salvation, and he did that, of course, because he loved us from the beginning. Nothing that we had done, hadn't even been born yet, in our case, thousands of years after God created the earth. He loved us, having foreknown us, and chose us unto salvation. So people have a lot to say about Abraham's great walk of faith, which Hebrews chapter 11 affirms. But if you pull back the screen and take a look at what's going on behind the scenes in terms of the sovereignty of God, we read that Abraham was chosen by God and brought forth from Ur of the Chaldees by God. That's in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 7. In Nehemiah 9, 7, it says, Thou art the Lord, the God who didst choose Abram and broughtest him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees and gavest him the name of Abraham. So I want us to appreciate that our sovereign God picked that man when he was up, when he was an idolater in Ur of the Chaldees and brought him forth, changed his name that he would um, confer upon him and through him would bring the uh, promised child by which all the nations of the earth should be blessed in Christ. Now our deacon read for us this morning Ephesians chapter 1. Um, the first 12 verses, which clearly set these truths before. She can't argue about it, what it says in Ephesians chapter 1 there. People argue about Romans 8, but nobody argues about Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, I'll read again verse 3 through 6. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. All the blessings that we receive are by virtue of us being in Christ. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. We read it in 2 Thessalonians that it was from the foundation of the world. Here we're learning that it's before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, in Christ. Having predestinated us according to the adoption of children by Christ Jesus to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. In verse 11, I'll jump there, it says, In whom, that would be in Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. God purposed our salvation. He elected us from before the foundation of the world, and it was according to his own counsel and his own will. We had nothing to do with it, had nothing to say about it. It's all rooted in his work, his work, his will, um, and his witness through um, the Spirit. So respecting the lives of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob in terms of God choosing them apart from others, Hagar and Ishmael, in particular, we see interesting language in the book of Genesis that sets these people apart. 
we see that in both cases, those groups of people are gathered to, quote, their people. They're gathered to their people. Now, remember God's promise to Abram in Genesis 15, 15. The Lord says to him in Genesis 15, And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. Thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Now, again, I quote from Matthew 22, 32, where Jesus, quoting God, says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. So I say this, we draw some conclusions here. Therefore, if Abraham, having died, is living to be buried with Abraham, allegorically speaking, is to be living with Abraham, who is living with God. God is placing us in this common place, which we know is Christ. In Genesis 25, verse 8, we read that then Abraham gave up the ghost and died a good in a good old age, which is what he was promised, an old man, and full of years, and was, quote, gathered to his people, as God promised he would. He is buried in the cave of Machpelah, a cave which he purchased and buried his wife Sarah in, no one else yet buried in the cave. For Abraham to be gathered to his fathers in peace clearly means that he's gathered to them beyond the grave, not simply buried in the same location. However, we're going to see this with respect to Isaac and Jacob and their wives. They're buried in that same location. This we read about in Genesis chapter 49, verses 29 through 31. And I'll read those. Genesis 49, 29 through 31. And he, this would be Jacob, he's talking to his children, charged them and said unto them, I am to be gathered unto my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought with the field of Ephron the Hittite for a possession of a bearing place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I, Jacob, buried Leah. So we see in this cave, we see Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah, all gathered to their fathers, buried in the cave of Machpelah. They were gathered to their fathers. As they were gathered to their fathers, so too shall all of God's elect be gathered together in Christ to our heavenly Father. Ephesians 1.10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth, even in him. All of this gathered, being gathered together. Um, this doctrinal truth can also be seen in Romans chapter 6, where it talks about we died with Christ, we're buried with Christ, and we'll be resurrected with Christ. Ephesians 2.6, it says, it speaks about him and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places. So as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were all buried in the cave of Machpelah and gathered unto their people, so too was Ishmael gathered unto his people. I should be pointing differently. Right versus left. Sheep on the right, goats on the left. Genesis 25, 17 says, And these are the years of the life of Ishmael, and 130 and seven years, and he gave up the ghost and died, and was, quote, gathered unto his people. Ishmael, as you recall, was sent away from Abraham, as all of Abraham's children, excepting Isaac, were sent away. They're different people groups. They're sent away from one another. 
Scripture remind us in Galatians 4.28, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. Not so Hagar and her son Ishmael. Galatians 4.30 tells us, Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. They are not heirs of the promise of God. They're gathered up to different locations. So as sympathetic a character as Hagar may be in our eyes, particularly when she's compared with Abraham and Sarai, neither she nor Ishmael are the elect of God. When they are both finally cast out, after the birth and winning of Isaac, the son of promise, we see that they ever live in the wilderness. When a, life is, when a wife is sought for Ishmael, Hagar takes him one from the world, from the house of bondage. She takes him a wife from Egypt, from whence she came. Genesis 21, 21 says, And he, Ishmael, dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt, as opposed to his father taking him a wife, which God, our Heavenly Father, takes the church for the wife of his son, Christ. This division continues between these people groups, Ishmael and Isaac, indicative of God setting a people apart for himself through the generations, the next generations as well, because we see that Esau will take one of Ishmael's daughters for his wife. Now, while some people object to the doctrine of election or predestination, it should be clear from what we've seen in Scripture the morning that if it were not true, if the doctrine of election were not true, no one would get to glory, no one would be saved, most certainly not Abraham or Sarai. This includes me, and so I thank God for the doctrine of election because it does include me, and I pray it includes everyone within the hearing of this word because it's because it does include me that I know that I will be gathered unto my people, the people of God, the people that are in Christ when I go to my grave, and I will ever live with the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, who is the God of the living, who gathers up all his people unto himself. And this is true only because of his grace and his mercy. Amen.